3: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. One more note, to protect the privacy of all those involved with this high-profile case, we've changed some names here and there.
1: Adam Walsh. Adam. Your mother is waiting for you at the front of the store. Please come to the courtesy desk to meet your mother. Adam Walsh, your mother is looking for you. Please find any uniformed Sears employee and ask them to bring you to the courtesy desk at the front of the store. Attention, Sears shoppers. Please, if anyone sees a six-year-old boy alone, help him make his way to the courtesy desk at the front of the store. This is an emergency.
3: It's time to get police involved. The mother is scaring the other shoppers. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
4: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our first episode on the killing of Adam John Walsh, an abducted six-year-old
3: You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: Revae Walsh recalls letting her son, Adam John Walsh, out of her sight for just a few minutes while she shopped at Sears in Hollywood, Florida, on July 27, 1981. When she returned... Her son had vanished without a trace, never to be seen alive again. It was a mother's worst nightmare come true.
3: For millions of other families who watched breathlessly as this case unfolded, this was the moment when everything changed.
4: Before the disappearance of Adam John Walsh, there was no National Registry for Missing Children, nor were their faces seen on milk cartons and on posters at government offices. Child abduction wasn't the horrifying specter constantly looming over American parents that it is today.
3: In many ways, the Adam John Walsh case ushered in the era of what some call helicopter parenting, driven by frightened parents for whom stranger danger suddenly felt very real and close to home. No longer could parents feel safe looking away from their kids even for just a moment.
4: Officially, the Adam Walsh case is closed. Police believe they know exactly who killed Adam, and so do Adam's parents. However, the suspected perpetrator was never charged with Adam's murder, and the theory was never tested in a court of law.
3: Questions still remain about the case, so for many people, the official explanation remains unproven. Some even believe the real murderer is still at large.
4: Before we can get a sense of who Adam Walsh was, we need to get to know who Adam's parents are.
3: John Walsh, Adam's father, was born on December 26, 1945 in Auburn, New York.
4: John was a fighter from the start. He writes in his memoir, Tears of Rage, that in childhood he was often seen brawling in the street with other boys, sometimes over nothing at all. He was proud of his prowess as a fighter.
3: John's father, Jack Walsh, was a World War II fighter pilot decorated for his courage under fire. According to John's memoir, the elder Mr. Walsh was always referred to by others either with the Irish honorific Gentleman Jack or by his nickname Adam, never simply as Jack. After leaving aerial heroics behind at the end of World War II, Adam Sr. became a family man. He loved nothing more than a peaceful evening at home.
4: The elder Mr. Walsh didn't approve of fighting, but knew when to pick his battles as a parent. The one thing Adams Sr. wouldn't tolerate was disrespect or violence towards women. How many times have I told you boys
0: to address your mother with respect? It's a man's duty in life to protect, defend, and care for women. And that starts with treating your mother with the same deference you show me. Not a word, I'm speaking. From this moment forward, you are to treat every request from your mother as if it's an order from me.
4: My wife is my partner, my equal, and most importantly, she gave each of you life. You will respect her. Well, what are you waiting for? Get back to your chores before I think of more to say.
3: John was taught from an early age to protect the vulnerable, but it took another defining moment for him to realize that lesson extended beyond girls and women and that Adam Sr. wanted his boys to protect everyone less fortunate than themselves.
4: One day when John was still quite young, his father brought another boy their age home for dinner. This wasn't unusual. Adam Sr. always liked to have a lot of children over at his house, especially those he saw unsupervised around Auburn. He liked to keep an eye on them if their parents couldn't.
3: But this boy, Eddie, was different. He was from a very poor family, and he had broken both of his legs jumping off a bridge in an attempt to impress other kids. He had both of his legs in casts, and those casts smelled awful.
4: John and his brothers made fun of Eddie behind his back. They thought it was harmless fun, but their father was listening. As soon as Eddie was out of the house, Mr. Walsh gave his sons a lecture they remembered forever.
0: You had nothing to do with being born into this family. And that boy had nothing to do with the fact that he was born into the situation he was.
3: This was the first time John realized how unfair life can be and how a person's circumstances could change in an instant. He was ashamed of himself for being so self-absorbed, worried about his own comfort rather than helping his father see to the needs of a less fortunate child. John
4: remembered this lesson as he grew. He did decently in school and eventually, after graduating from his Catholic high school, John worked as a heavy equipment operator while attending classes at Auburn Community College. He managed to save up enough money to transfer to the University of Buffalo.
3: John majored in English, though he later switched to history. During the summer, he came home to Auburn and drove heavy equipment for a few months, making enough spending money to last him through the school year.
4: College life didn't do much to settle John's fiery temperament. He was still fighting at the drop of a hat. Although John wasn't tall, he was strong and scrappy. His natural athleticism soon won the respect of the biggest jocks on campus. John's college friends were mostly varsity athletes who shared his love of a good brawl.
3: One of those friends was Michael Quinn, a Golden Gloves boxer. John fearlessly agreed to spar with a much larger Quinn. As he recounted later in Tears of Rage, during a friendly bout at the YMCA, Michael Quinn delivered a devastating blow to John's skull. The smaller man crumpled to the floor unconscious. When he woke up, John was in terrible pain. The blow had ruptured his eardrum.
4: John's hearing never fully recovered, but he and Quinn went right back to partying together. John's crew of jocks became known throughout their campus and even among neighboring colleges for their rowdy behavior.
3: While still in college, John received a letter informing him that he had been drafted to fight in the Vietnam War. However, John soon discovered that his ruptured eardrum made him unfit for duty. The army tried twice more to draft John, but both times he was declared unfit for duty.
4: John was greatly relieved and deeply thankful to his friend. That brutal punch to the head may well have saved his life.
3: Despite John's hard partying lifestyle, there was at least one person who could bring out his softer side. Revae Drew was a few years younger than John. They met in 1967 when she was just 16, but had a self-assuredness and serenity about her that immediately appealed to John.
4: John writes in Tears of Rage that his friends approved of Revae, nicknaming her John with longer hair for her ability to keep up with John's fast-paced, adventurous lifestyle. The two spent a lot of time together during John's college years, but it was the free-wheeling 1960s and both Ruvay and John were long-haired hippies who didn't care for the old-fashioned idea of going steady. They both saw other people and didn't consider themselves an exclusive couple.
3: During his on-again, off-again relationship with Ruvay, John discovered a love for diving. He learned scuba and started spearfishing on vacations to the Caribbean. After graduating in 1965, John decided to move to Florida, where he could dive all year. Revae stayed in New York, but visited John from time to time.
4: John became a cabana boy at an idyllic Florida resort. While working there, he used his scuba gear to save the life of a child trapped in a drainage pipe that was rapidly filling with water. John put his mask and regulator on the child to help him breathe, giving rescuers time to figure out how to extract him from the pipe.
3: That child was the son of one of the hotel's top executives, Mr. Monahan. His gratitude was immense. He offered to help John get out of the cabana business and into the hotel business.
4: John accepted his offer and started a career in the resort industry. But before he began working, there was one more thing to take care of, He had come to the realization that he was in love with Revae, and he wanted to marry her.
3: This sudden insight came as a surprise to everyone involved, even John. Revae and John had never been officially together, and both were dating other people. She still lived in upstate New York while John was in Florida. Although they remained close friends, they were hardly a couple.
4: Unexpected as this spur-of-the-moment decision was, John was certain about it. Once he realized he wanted to marry Revae, he didn't want to waste a moment. He immediately returned to New York and raced to Revae's home to propose.
3: She wasn't home. In fact, she was out on a date with another man. John waited in her foyer, pacing nervously.
4: When Revae returned, she was shocked to find John there. He wasted no time in telling her that he loved her, he wanted to spend the rest of his life with her, and he refused to return to Florida without her john had rushed home so quickly to propose he hadn't even bought a ring
3: well, moved by john's uncharacteristic display of emotion revae accepted his proposal john and Rave were officially engaged he promised to return to new york soon and put a ring on her finger in front of her family like a proper gentleman
4: john kept that promise soon flying out to revae's hometown of clarence new york to give her the ring Ruvay was so nervous about the engagement that she accidentally totaled her father's car while picking John up at the airport.
3: Fortunately, the rest of their engagement went more smoothly. John Walsh and Ruvay Drew became Mr. and Mrs. Walsh on July 10, 1971. They spent their two-month honeymoon adventuring across Europe together.
4: When it came time to return to the States and settle down... John took Mr. Monaghan up on his offer and got into the hotel marketing business. It was a cutthroat industry at the time, highly competitive and rapidly growing.
3: Finally, John had found a career where his fighter's disposition was useful for more than roughing people up. He scrapped his way to unconventional business successes, from enduring tense negotiations to rescuing nearly bankrupt hotels. When
4: a top Bahamian official demanded a bribe from John, he refused to pay, even under the threat of violence. It was a risky move, but it worked out. The official backed down, and with time, John saw that his courage had even gained him some fans among the local government, who appreciated seeing someone stand up to their corrupt colleague. Deal-making was easier from then on out.
3: Revae and John lived in Miami Shores, Florida, but they spent a lot of their time in the Bahamas. John pursued his spearfishing hobby and added free diving to his underwater repertoire. Reve, for her part, got into bodybuilding.
4: Although John always honored his father's edict to treat women with respect, he didn't pay much attention to Reve's feelings. On at least two occasions while diving in the Bahamas, John swam off to fish with fellow expert divers and left Reve alone in shark-infested waters. After the second incident, Revae was so upset, she quit diving entirely.
3: Revae sometimes wondered if John really loved her, or if he just liked having a carefree, up-for-anything wife as an accessory to his adventurous lifestyle. She even wondered if she might have been happier with a less exciting, but more loving husband.
4: After three years as husband and wife, John and Revae felt their marriage, though not perfect, was stable enough to start a family. Despite Revey's doubts, in 1974, the Walshes decided to have their first child. Revae quickly became pregnant. She glowed with joy as she prepared to welcome her child.
3: When we come back, a new family of three faces
0: a heartbreaking loss. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some...
3: On November 14, 1974, Revae Walsh gave birth to a baby boy. The happy parents named him Adam John Walsh, after his grandfather and his father. Family friend Jim Campbell was honored with the title of godfather to the baby.
4: Within weeks of Adam's birth, his namesake, Adam Sr., was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a form of cancer which had already metastasized throughout his body. His health declined fast. In spite of his failing body, Adam Sr. mustered up enough strength for a visit to Florida to see his first grandson.
3: The family went, of course, to Disney World, with four-month-old Adam Jr. in a baby bassinet and 53-year-old Adam Sr. in a body brace. They couldn't move through the park very quickly, but it was still the happiest place on earth for this young family.
4: Adam Jr. loved his grandfather. When he got old enough to pull himself up and stand, he made funny noises to get Adam Sr.'s attention, sounding like a rooster. In turn, the family nicknamed the baby boy Rooster McCooster, which later got shortened to Cooter. The nickname stuck.
3: Sadly, the resurgence in vitality that Adam Jr. brought to his grandfather couldn't last forever. In 1975, Adam Sr. died at age 54.
4: The death of John's father, coming so close to the birth of his first child, ushered in a new era in John's life. He was now the patriarch of his family, his father's eldest son. And he was a father himself, desperate to inspire and mold his son the way Adam Sr. had inspired and
3: molded him. John had so many plans for his little boy, who, he writes, was an old soul from the start. He dressed little Adam in sport coats and a captain's hat, He took him on vacation to the Bahamas. His boy seemed to be up for anything, almost from birth.
4: Adam never tantrumed. He loved to travel. Ruvay and John couldn't figure out how they'd gotten so lucky, or if they'd just done an outstanding job of parenting on the first try. He even took to the water just as naturally as his father, and began swimming while he was still in
3: diapers. When he was a tiny tot, Adam went wherever his parents did, but as he grew, Rave and John went wherever he did. When he wanted to play baseball, the adventurous globetrotting Walshes happily became a Little League family. Adam was the center of their world.
4: He was the first child born into Rave and John's circle of friends. Their excited pals all became unofficial aunts and uncles, eager to play with him and spoil him with gifts and snacks.
3: Jim Campbell, Adam's godfather, was especially close to Adam. Revae and John called Jim Dudley Do-Right, after a helpful cartoon character, for his willingness to help out with anything the boy needed. He helped the Walshes with yard work, home maintenance, and, of course, babysitting.
4: Possibly because he was surrounded by so many loving adults, Adam spoke and behaved like a tiny grown-up. He was so polite that when he called his father's office, he asked for Mr. John Walsh instead of my daddy.
3: John hated leaving Adam for even a few hours, but his job meant he was hardly ever home for more than a couple of weeks in a row. His only consolation on those long business trips was the knowledge that Adam was well protected.
4: When John was gone, Jim Campbell often stayed at the house to keep Adam and Revae company. Jim sometimes told people that Adam had two fathers, one who was gone all the time, meaning John, and one who was always home, meaning Jim.
3: John was grateful for Jim's help and didn't mind, at first, that another man was acting like a father to his son. That was what a godfather should do, John thought.
4: But not only was Jim acting as Adam's father while John was away, he was acting as Revae's husband, too. It's unclear when exactly Jim and Revae started sleeping together, but it happened during the first few years of Adam's life.
3: Reve, raising her first child, was lonely, tired, and confused about her marriage. She began to look to Jim for emotional support and co-parenting, while she saw John as a provider and a protector. John was hardly ever around, and when he was, he didn't show much interest in meeting Ravey's emotional needs. So Ravey and Jim's affair continued, along with Jim's special relationship to Adam.
4: Perhaps sensing something amiss in his home life, John became more and more paranoid about Adam's safety. He constantly worried about something happening to Adam. When he was home, John hardly ever let Adam out of his sight.
0: John's late for happy hour again. You think the missus kept him home? No, he's probably following his kid around like a mama duck. (laughs) I thought it was the baby ducks that do the following. Oh, look at the big duck expert over here. My point is, we gotta get John a life. I think he's obsessed with his kid. That's his first kid. Everyone's obsessed with their first kid. Uh, Not like John. He can't walk to school with his friends. Daddy drops him off. Can't go to the park alone. What's gonna happen to the little mite if you let him explore? Maybe he trips and skins his knee, so what? Pain builds character. Hey! Hey, John.
2: John! Hey, how's Adam?
0: Hit any home runs lately? Open up your wallet. Let's see a picture of the little man.
4: Through parenting Adam, John came to realize for the first time what he'd put his own parents through with all of his dangerous travels and schoolboy fistfights. Just picturing Adam in any kind of danger made John's blood run cold.
3: But Adam was oblivious to his father's fears. He had all of John's courage and tenacity, but he wasn't a fighter like his father. Instead, He was a natural optimist and a peacemaker.
4: One day in the spring of 1981, on a trip to the Bahamas, John was uncharacteristically inattentive while Adam and a Bahamian boy played with Adam's toy trucks. Engrossed in an intense conversation, John lost sight of Adam.
3: When he turned back around, as John writes in Tears of Rage, Adam was waving goodbye to his new friend, who was leaving with all of Adam's toys. When
4: John pointed this out to Adam, the six-year-old boy shrugged and explained that the other boy didn't have any toys, so Adam gave his friend all of his trucks.
3: That was the kind of kid Adam was, and that was the kind of kid his parents now knew they could raise.
4: On July 10th, 1981, Rivay and John celebrated their 10th wedding anniversary by deciding it was time to try for a second baby. Ruvay immediately ended her affair with Jim. Sleeping with another man while trying to get pregnant with John felt like crossing an even bigger line than the affair itself.
3: And besides, Ruvay didn't need Jim as a surrogate husband anymore. John had a new job, with a new resort that allowed him to travel less, bringing him home to Ruvay and Adam more often.
4: John still spent much of his time in the Bahamas, sometimes bringing Adam along with him, but he was home in Florida more often.
3: And now, the Walshes hoped any day for the news of a second baby on the way. They were also blessed to still have John's mother, who Adam called Graham, living nearby and playing a big part in their lives. They also had a wonderful group of friends. Michael Monahan and his little brother, Johnny, Johnny being the very child whose life John saved more than a decade earlier, were always hanging around the house, helping out and playing with Adam.
4: And at that time, Jim Campbell constantly looked for any excuse to stay overnight, even after Rave kicked him out of her bed. He had grown so attached to Adam that he was reluctant to leave.
3: Jim's constant presence started to wear on John, even though John was still clueless about the affair. John simply grew tired of coming home to find another man doing father-son activities with Adam.
4: Then, on July 26, 1981, the night before Adam went missing, Jim took Adam to the movies and brought him home late. That was the last straw for John, who finally asked Jim to stop staying overnight. He even cleared out the bedroom where Jim kept a few of his things.
3: In John's mind, this wasn't a repudiation of his family's relationship with Jim. He looked at Jim, who was 11 years John's junior, as a younger brother.
4: So, on the morning of July 27, 1981, despite their argument, John went off to work thinking very little about Jim, much less about Jim and Revae. He was thinking about spending time with Adam after he got home that night.
3: Ever the practical and frugal family man, John also spent part of his workday thinking about lamps. There were brass barrel lamps on sale at Sears that week, and John wanted them for the living room.
4: At 10 a.m., John took a break from his work to call Revae and remind her to get the lamps that she had seen in an advertisement. She said she would.
3: A little after 11, Revae and Adam left the house together. Adam wore green shorts, an IZOD shirt, yellow flip-flops, and his favorite off-white captain's hat. They were headed to Sears, but first they had to stop by St. Mark's, the Catholic school where Adam was enrolled for the fall. Tuition was due.
5: No, ma'am. We haven't heard anything about an outbreak of lice. Please hold. Thank you. Hello, Mrs. Walsh. Are you here for... Good morning, St. Marks. To whom am I speaking? Oh, hello, Mrs. Riley. May I place you on a brief hold? Thanks so much. Now, Mrs. Walsh, how can I... Good morning, St. Marks. How may I connect your call? No, we're perfectly happy with our long-distance service. Thank you. So sorry, Mrs. Walsh. And hello, Adam. Isn't your hat cute? Can I help you with... Good morning, St. Mark's. To whom am I speaking? Oh,
4: hello! According to Revae's recollection, printed in Tears of Rage, the receptionist at St. Mark's was so busy on the phone, she couldn't stop to help Reve pay her tuition. She left a check on the desk and walked out.
3: Next stop, Sears, for those lamps John wanted so badly. Revey drove about a mile from the school to the Sears store in Hollywood, Florida.
4: As she entered the store, Ruvay knew what was coming. They'd walk past the new computer video games aisle, where revolutionary new games like Donkey Kong were on display, playable in store.
3: Adam always begged to stop and play these games. Today was no different.
4: There were some older boys gathered around the gaming machines. Ruvay saw them and felt that Adam would be safe in a group of kids. She decided to let him play for just a moment while she ran to the lamp section.
3: Revae ordered Adam not to move from the games aisle. She repeated that she would be in the lamp section and that he was to stay put right where he was.
4: Then she went to shop for those brass barrel lamps. They weren't on display, so she had to get help from an employee. By the time word came back from the stock department that the lamps were sold out, Revae had been separated from Adam for five or ten minutes at the most, according to Revae's recollection.
3: There are two stories about what happened while Revae was shopping for her lamps. There's the official story, the one police believe, which starts with a teenage girl working security at Sears. Her name is Kathy Schaefer, and she says that on the day of Adam's disappearance, she threw four kids out of the store for making a ruckus in the video game section.
4: Kathy put the rowdy kids out of the store's west entrance. Adam had only ever entered the store through the north door, so he would have been totally lost if he was put out the west door.
1: You can't kick us out. This is America. Relax, dude. She can't hear you. She's already gone. Yeah, you're one to talk. You got us kicked out anyway, hogging the joystick. How is this my fault? You hit me first. Because you were hogging the joystick. Now look what you did. We're banned from Sears, and you got that poor little kid kicked out too. What little kid? The blonde kid with the hat, dingus. Or are you blind and a joystick hog? Seriously, I don't see a little kid. Look stupid, he's right here. Wait, where'd he go? Hey, kid. Hey, kid, where are you?
3: If Adam was ejected from the store with the older boys, he might have wandered off to try to get back inside. He had promised his mother he'd be in the game section And he told her he knew where the lamps were. If they got separated, he might have tried to look for her there.
4: Alone on an unfamiliar side of the store, not knowing how to get back to a familiar landmark, Adam would have been lost and confused. He'd be a sitting duck for any kidnapper wanting to scoop him up. It would be as easy as promising to help him find his mother.
3: It's a reasonable story, But Kathy Schaefer was never really sure if Adam was in the group she ejected on July 27, 1981. The group of kids could have been a completely different bunch. And there's at least one other witness who remembers another story about that day.
4: Vernon Jones was nine at the time. As the South Florida Sun-Sentinel reported in 2010... Jones had been telling the same story about that day consistently since at least 1996, when he would have been 24 years old.
3: Jones says he played in television baseball with Adam on July 27th. Vernon remembers that Adam was batting with the bases loaded, then hit a grand slam. Vernon was impatiently waiting for a turn with the game, but Little League champ Adam wasn't ready to give up the joystick.
4: While watching Adam play... Vernon says he glanced behind them and saw a man beckoning, as if for Adam to come with him. He thought nothing of it. Vernon was at the time more worried about getting his chance to play computer games.
3: Vernon says he moved on to another game. And when he turned around next, he saw Adam leaving with the strange man. He only has a vague recollection of what the man looked like. Of
4: course, a nine-year-old's memory, reported to police 15 years later isn't the most reliable source. But neither is a teenage security guard's maybe about whether or not she kicked Adam Walsh out of Sears.
3: There's no hard evidence, no security cameras, no record of gameplay that might show exactly when Adam left the section. We may never know how, why, or when Adam vanished from the gaming aisle. What we do know for sure is that not long after going off to get her lamps, Rouve returned to the gaming aisle to collect her son. She found the aisle empty.
4: Video game sound effects echoed into the empty store aisle. It sounded like the games were being played. The constant noise had reassured Rouve while she shopped within earshot. But now she saw that the machines made sounds even when nobody was playing them.
3: She tried not to panic. Just like every mother who loses track of a child in a store, she told herself over and over that she would find him. He was probably just around the next corner. He couldn't possibly have just vanished.
4: But of course, he had.
3: When we come back, the search for Adam begins.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
4: Back to the story.
3: On July 27, 1981, six-year-old Adam John Walsh disappeared after his mother, Ravee Walsh, left him alone in the video game aisle of a Sears store in Hollywood, Florida. A complete search of the premises turned up no sign of him.
4: Panicked, Revae ran out of the store and, by total coincidence, ran into John's mother, who the family called Graham. For a moment, she thought Graham must have Adam, but Graham had just come to shop, having no idea that her grandson was supposed to be here too.
3: Nobody took Revae seriously in those first few minutes of her search. At the time, the words missing child didn't stir up the instant panic they do today. To the clerks, and even to Adam's grandmother, Revae was just a frantic mom whose kid was probably somewhere perfectly ordinary, lost in the big Sears store, maybe eating candy or using the bathroom.
4: Minutes ticked away. Minutes that could have been used to contact the police and start a serious search for Adam. But all the store did at first was page Adam over the PA system.
1: Adam Walsh? Adam, your mother is waiting for you at the front of the
3: store. Revey frantically raced around the store, showing people Adam's official first-grade picture from her wallet, He happened to be wearing the same shirt in the picture that he was wearing that day when he went missing. It would have been easy for people to recognize him, but nobody had seen him.
4: Graham was now convinced something terrible had happened to Adam. She helped Revae search, but they were getting nowhere. They begged the store for help. Adam was paged again, this time to meet his mother in the toys department. He didn't come.
3: Unbelievably, with a mother and grandmother completely distraught over a missing child and begging for help, it was almost two hours before the police were called. Ravey doesn't know exactly who called them, but they didn't take long to arrive once the 911 call was made.
4: The Hollywood, Florida Police Department was located across the street from Sears. But by the time police finally arrived at Sears, Adam could have been more than 100 miles away.
3: Again, this was a different world than the one we know today. 1981 was a time before every rational parent lived in fear of strangers abducting their children.
4: And on July 27th, 1981, the two cops who responded to the call didn't think much of Adam's disappearance.
0: (sighs) You think the mom's on to something?
1: I think the kid's walking home. She'll find him when she gets home. Probably got hungry. She said he didn't know the way home. Not knowing something never stopped my kids from trying anyway. I guess you're right. Who would just steal a kid? Somebody with money to burn? My son cost me a mint. (laughs) Maybe you should take your kid to Sears more often. (laughs) Don't let the mother hear you joke like that. I guess we better take a look around the neighborhood. Put her mind at ease. I'm sure we'll find him.
4: Police issued a bolo, or be on the lookout, for Adam. It wasn't a search, not even close. All it meant was that they'd keep an eye out for him.
3: Ruvay and Graham were desperate at this point. Graham drove back to the Walsh's house a mile away and started asking every neighbor if they'd seen Adam. If the police were right and he had tried to walk home, surely someone would have seen him.
4: Someone eventually called John, although it's not clear who. Graham remembers calling him, but John remembers receiving a call from Ruvay. Either way, the panicked tone on the telephone sent John straight into action mode.
3: John leaped into the car and sped off towards Sears. He also called John Monahan, the rich executive who felt indebted to John Walsh for saving his son's life. Monahan had friends at the police station, and John hoped he could use his clout to spur the police into action.
4: But when John arrived at Sears, he was upset to see only a few cops standing around. Where were the flashing lights, the helicopters, even the detectives? Nobody seemed to be looking for Adam. John shouted and demanded answers, but the sun was beginning to set.
3: The cops invited the Walshes across the street to wait inside the police station while the search, such as it was, continued. They had no choice but to agree. Meanwhile, the police worked on figuring out how exactly to find Adam.
4: Before they left the parking lot, the Walshes unlocked their car, the one Adam would recognize, and left a note for him in case he returned to it. As John writes in Tears of Rage, the note read, Adam, stay in the car. Mommy and Daddy are looking for you.
3: Something changed about the tenor of the search while Revae and John were walking across the street to the Hollywood station. Perhaps it was because the sun was setting and Adam was still missing. Even the previously dismissive cops no longer seemed to feel like this was just a case of a boy trying to walk home.
4: When the Walshes arrived at the station, they were greeted by police sergeants and detectives. Their minds flip flopped between best and worst case scenarios. Adam was either alone or with a stranger, he was alive or he was dead, he was lost or he was taken. Not knowing which was true made the waiting that much harder.
3: The Walshes didn't know that their story had already made the radio news. They didn't realize that friends from around the country were arriving at their house, hoping to help.
4: Les Davies, one of John's first wealthy friends in the business of hotels and resorts, took a plane from the Bahamas the instant he heard about a missing child named Adam Walsh.
3: The Monaghan family was there, of course. So were dozens of the Walsh's neighbors. After the Walsh's left the police station to join the search, 47 members of the Hollywood Citizens' Crime Watch began sweeping the neighborhood on foot. They paid special attention to the area's many canals, where a child could easily drown.
4: Police boats, too, sailed the canals, looking for any sign of a child, alive or dead. Overhead, helicopters took to the sky, scanning the ground with powerful searchlights. Twenty-two off-duty officers came into work to help. Truck drivers cruised up and down the suburban side streets, coordinating via their CB radios to search for the missing child.
3: It was a manhunt on a massive scale for one six-year-old boy, and it was instantly national headline news. On the morning of Tuesday, July 28, 1981, When John and Revae made their first of many TV appearances to plead with the public for help finding their son, the story ran on every channel. A massive search underway tonight for Adam John Walsh, a six-year-old boy
1: who disappeared during...
5: Police are now asking for tips from the public on the whereabouts of Adam John Walsh, who disappeared in Hollywood, Florida. His parents say this photo was taken just last week, showing his two missing front teeth. If you have any information on this case, please call... Reward for information leading to the recovery of Adam John Walsh has grown since police first established it. Now reaching...
4: As the story hit the national airwaves, everyone thought they'd seen Adam. He was such a cute little boy with his blonde hair and his squinty-eyed gap-toothed grin in the photos released to the media. People were spotting him all over the country.
3: Police dutifully followed up on the public tips they deemed credible but none led to any progress. The onslaught of distracting, unhelpful tips got worse when the Walshes officially offered a reward for their son's safe return.
4: Equally unhelpful was prominent psychic Mickey Dane, who visited Sears with Ruvé on July 29th, two days after Adam disappeared. She walked through Sears and gestured vaguely at one of the exits, saying Adam went that way according to a report by Florida's Local 10.
3: Although it was reported at the time that the Walshes had asked Dane to help, in Tears of Rage, John says the psychic showed up of her own volition. She seemed to be interested in promoting her radio talk show by attaching herself to Adam's case.
4: Revey even says she heard Mickey Dane on the phone with other psychics, encouraging them to come down to Florida and enjoy the sunny weather while working the Walsh case.
3: The psychic thought Adam was likely still out there somewhere alive, The Walshes didn't believe in psychics and didn't appreciate Dane's self-serving motives, yet they clung to her prediction like a life raft. They were, by this time, desperate for any source of hope.
4: John used his hotel marketing skills to make his own missing child posters for Adam. They had all his vital statistics on them—height, build, hair color, eye color, and a recent photo taken just the week before.
3: You might have seen a poster like these, maybe at your local post office or online. They all look roughly the same. That's because they're all based on the one John made for Adam.
4: Les Davies, the resort owner and tourism promoter from the Bahamas, had an idea. He got Delta Airlines involved, using his connections to talk one of the company's vice presidents into having Delta pilots hand-deliver missing posters for Adam to airports around the world. No matter where a person flew into, Les wanted them to be looking for Adam in the terminal.
3: John writes in Tears of Rage that over 150,000 flyers were printed in the first week after Adam disappeared.
4: It took until Thursday of that week, July 30th, 72 hours after Adam disappeared, for police to say that Adam John Walsh had more than likely been abducted. The police were forced to admit if he'd wandered off, he would have been found by now.
3: By August 1st, five days into the manhunt for Adam, John Walsh was becoming a local celebrity for all the worst possible reasons. He held an informal press conference in the Sears parking lot, jumping onto the hood of a car to rally searchers to start distributing his 150,000 flyers.
4: John insisted he still believed his son was alive, being held somewhere by a kidnapper, perhaps in another city. He and Revae called on everyone helping with the search to distribute missing child flyers beyond the city of Hollywood, out into surrounding areas where people might be unaware of the case, despite frequent news coverage.
3: Thanks to John's talent for marketing, the family was able to take advantage of public interest in the story.
4: But John began learning uncomfortable truths about notoriety. First, that even as a terrified grieving father, he would have to play the media's game. Reporters insisted he raise the cash reward for Adams' return over and over so that they could justify running his story on the news for yet another night.
3: Every time the reward went up, so did the crank calls to the tip line, which distracted police from potentially useful lines of inquiry. Some of these distractions included salacious rumors that began to spread about the Walshes.
5: I heard the mother left her son so she could have a tryst with her lover in the parking lot. Only a trollop would just leave a child like that. True. And to make matters worse, I heard the father was in business with the mob. They must have seen the mother leave and taken the kid as punishment for a deal gone wrong.
4: No matter which story you believed, if you were anywhere near South Florida in early August of 1981, you probably had an opinion on the
3: Adam Walsh case. Graham moved into John and Ravey's house to wait for Adam's safe return and to comfort her son and daughter-in-law. John's brothers, the Monahans, and even Jim Campbell, helped keep the massive search operation going, day in and day out.
4: On August 10, 1981, two weeks after Adam disappeared, the Walshes scheduled an appearance on Good Morning America to plead yet again for the safe return of their son.
3: That same morning, two fishermen made a horrible discovery.
4: Uh, stuck on the bottom again? You're casting stinks today.
1: I think you're smelling your own B.O., pal. Wait. Shut up. Look. Look where? Upstream. That thing stuck in the reeds. Tell me I'm seeing things. That doll head? Yeah, freaky, right? Who throws that in the canal? Uh... I don't think that's a doll. Look at the eyes. What the? Oh my God. Oh Jesus Christ. Get it, get it, we have to get it. I'm not touching that. I'm gonna puke. Puke all you want, but pass me your bucket. I'm grabbing it.
3: They found a child's head floating in a canal in Indian River County near Vero Beach, about 125 miles from where Adam disappeared. Police called the Walshes to inform them of the development. Based on dental records, they thought the remains were Adam's.
4: Revey and John Walsh went ahead with their news appearance while police moved forward with a forensic analysis.
3: John disclosed on Good Morning America that some remains found in Indian River County were being tested, but said he thought there was a good chance Adam was still alive and the remains were unrelated to his case. He and Reveille again begged the nation for any information on the whereabouts of their son.
4: Bad news would come the next day, August 11th. Police asked for the Walshes or someone who had been close to Adam to confirm the opinion of Dr. Franklin H. Cox that the remains found were in fact Adam's.
3: John Monaghan took on this burden for his dear friends. He knew Revae and John could not be expected to survive this final, terrible test.
4: John Monahan drove there, knowing he was in for one of the worst days of his life. He arrived with a police escort. The smell of formaldehyde was strong, and most everyone in the building wore white lab coats.
3: John Monahan ascended a long flight of stairs and finally reached the autopsy room where he would meet Dr. Cox.
4: According to Tears of Rage, the medical examiner brought forward a small object wrapped in towels. Delicately, he unwrapped it.
3: There, resting in its nest of towels, was the severed head of Adam Walsh.
4: It had been floating in brackish water for some time under the Florida sun. It wasn't recognizable from the face alone. But when the medical examiner opened the head's lips... John Monahan saw the gums and the tooth Adam had lost.
3: John Monahan confirmed it. Adam Walsh was found. The hunt for a missing child was over, and the hunt for a killer was about to begin.
4: On our next episode, we'll discuss who killed Adam Walsh. We'll explore the official story, as well as the numerous alternative versions of events that have circulated in the media and online in the nearly 40 years since Adam went missing.
3: Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of this story.
4: You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review.
4: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
3: We'll see you next time.
4: If we live till next time.
3: Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. Is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Yelena War and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, in alphabetical order, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Sky King, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, and Jack Shellruff.